All right, guys, let's get started. Welcome to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for occupying your Saturday morning with, well, with God's Word and with fellowship with the saints. It's a good thing to do. Um, how many of you have never been to a Saturday seminar at our church before? Raise your hand if you haven't. Okay, good. Glad you're here. Uh, how many of you have been to, let's say, four or more? Raise your hand. Good. Marvin, you have too, I'm sure. I bet you have, uh, you may have the record. Next, next to me, you may have the record. Many years ago, we used to do about six of these a year, every other month. Um, and so people who were around back then, well, it's amazing that they're showing up still because uh, they could easily be worn out. So this morning, if this is new to you, what we do is we take um, three one-hour talks, basically. Uh, we'll have some bathroom breaks and uh, some snack breaks there in between those three-hour talks. Uh, you can look inside your booklet and sort of see where we're going based on the titles that are um, scattered throughout there. Uh, by the way, don't get too distracted with that fascinating chart that you have in addition to your booklet. Um, Ron will talk about that in his session next. Uh, I won't talk about it, and uh, I have a feeling you could actually ignore whatever I'm saying to try to figure out what that chart is doing. Um, please don't. So I'll talk about the basics of Hebrew poetry in Psalm 1. Then Pastor Ron will talk about collections in the Psalter and Psalm 90. And then Pastor Trent will talk about Psalms and your soul, uh, leaning on Psalm 46. So I'll let you read that intro page that you have on page one of your booklet on your own, not now. Uh, I'll let you read that later, or maybe you already have if you've been sitting here. But uh, let's jump in uh, with page two, and then we'll, we'll talk about this first point before we pray. Let's begin by asking and answering the question, why a seminar on the Psalms? Um, let me suggest four things, four things I jotted down this morning. Because the Psalms are special, number one. In fact, I can actually write some of these things down I forgot to do. So why? Well, the Psalms are special. Of course, all of God's Word is inspired and special, but uh, God's saints through the ages have considered the Psalms a special portion, an experiential portion of God's Word. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. And listen to a longer quote from Calvin about the Psalms. He says, there's not an emotion that is not represented here in the Psalms as in a mirror pointing back at us. The Holy Spirit has here drawn all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are prone to be agitated. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments, but here his servant writers are exhibited to us as speaking to God and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections. Hence they call, or rather draw, each of us to the examination of himself in order that none of the many infirmities to which we're subjected and the many vices with which we abound may remain concealed. In short, the Psalms show us how to bring things to God and then how to be changed as we're before him in prayer and in praise. Another reason for a Saturday seminar on the Psalms is that we need tools. 
uh, on Sunday morning, there are certain tools that have been implemented in the preparation of a sermon that you don't get to see. And so on a Saturday morning like this, we're able to talk about technical terms in a different way than we possibly could or should uh, on a Sunday morning. And so we're going to talk about tools for the purpose of you on your own uh, reading the Psalms better and more richly. A third reason is no fortune cookies. What do I mean? Well, some of us still read our Bibles only looking for gems that strike us and stand out to us that we might underline or even memorize. And of course, that often comes from good intentions and can also have uh, some fruit. But it can also leave aside the way God's word has come to us. So with the Psalms, we don't just have a collection of sayings or verses. Uh, we have whole Psalms. And we have 150 of them in a certain order and uh, with certain departments or, or, or sections to them. And so we have to continue to discipline ourselves away from um, a fortune cookie approach to the Bible that just collects sayings. And I have to continue to do that myself. It's easy for me to just see a verse and be moved by a verse and, and perhaps not consider something like context. Another reason, poetry is hard. <laughs> How many of you think poetry is hard? I do. Uh, I didn't grow up learning the, the basics of poetry, let alone Hebrew poetry. I think most of us read the whole Bible basically like we would read a New Testament letter or epistle. Uh, we're looking for grammar. We're looking for flow of thought. Um, we don't have the elements of poetry uh, clearly in mind. And there are certain rules. There are certain tools that can be used in the reading and understanding of poetry. And those tools and those rules are either going to be ignored or they're going to be utilized. And so that's my talk today, for us to think about those rules and how poetry works, and then we'll take what we've learned towards the end and try it out on Psalm 1. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and glory in it. We pray you'd help us to see marvelous things in your word today, not out of curiosity's sake or for mere discovery or even growth in our interpretation, but that we might commune with you, that we might better know you through your word that you have spoken and you have preserved for us today. We thank you for those with us to study your word together. We pray for your help. We pray for your encouragement. We pray you'd be glorified, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's talk about basics of Hebrew poetry. What are the basics of Hebrew poetry? And let's start by thinking of um, the kinds of psalms that we have. Let's see if this keeps working here. Yes, kinds of psalms that we have. By the way, I'll keep abbreviating psalms, plural as P-S-S, so here are the kinds of psalms or the categories or even some would say genres of psalms that we have among the 150. And not everyone agrees with um, how they should be categorized or how many psalms uh, kinds there are. 
Some would suggest that there are six kinds. Uh, some would suggest 10 or 12. Let me suggest eight different kinds. And, and know this, even before I start, that some psalms are difficult to categorize. And some psalms have multiple kinds of psalm material within them. Uh, but generally, they can be categorized uh, along these kinds of lines. Praise psalms. Psalm 100 is a praise psalm. Basically, any psalm that begins with praise is going to be a praise psalm, 103 to 105. You can see in your notes, with each of these, I've suggested a few examples of this kind of psalm, uh, but there are many more than just a few in each of those kinds of psalms. You could, you could Google kinds of psalms and find multiple versions of a chart that would basically categorize the whole Psalter into different kinds. I can leave you to do that on your own. But kinds of psalms, there are praise psalms, there are thanksgiving psalms, there are confidence slash trust psalms. These often have an element of resolve in them. I will, I will trust, I will. There are historical psalms, like Psalm 78. These are often some of the longer psalms that we have. They review God's mighty acts in history and then praise him for them. There are lament psalms. Psalms 3 through 5 are sort of a package of these. In fact, I think Psalm 1 through 13 has uh, a whole handful of lament psalms. And these mourn the difficult circumstances that the psalmist finds himself in. He, he mourns before God and asks God for help. And then within these lament psalms, there's another category we could call imprecatory psalms. These are like lament psalms, except they have the added feature of evoking God's judgment upon the wicked. It's expressing righteous indignation for that which is against God and his ways and, and also his, his people. Then there are kingship and, or royal psalms. These are also called enthronement psalms. Probably no surprise that many of them are, are written by David and have to do with God's promises to David or the future of the Davidic throne. And lastly, at least in my listing of them, there are also wisdom psalms. Uh, Psalm 1, Psalm 19, some others as well. These wisdom psalms feel a little bit like Proverbs, or at least the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Uh, they instruct, um, they, they teach, they, they have to do with conduct. Now, why would the categorization of psalms be useful to us? Well, it helps us interpret. It sort of gives us some some guidelines, rough guidelines, not strict parameters, but some basic guidelines for where the psalm's going if we've got the kind of psalm uh, right. Uh, and we do this with all kinds of other reading, don't we? Um, you don't read comics the exact same way that you read a David Brooks piece from the New York Times. Um, or if a, a story begins once upon a time, you sort of already know um, kind of where this is going and what kind of literature this is. Categorizing psalms like this as well and keeping in mind what the categories are uh, can help bring clarity to some of the images or symbolism in a psalm that aren't quite immediately clear to us because we're separated by continents and, uh, and millennia. 
Um, they can also show us the psalm's purpose. The kind of psalm, knowing what the kind of psalm is, can help us know how to use it. And related to that, it helps us know where to go within the psalms when we need something special for our souls. So if we have, really, an enemy attacking us for righteousness' sake, a, a lament, and maybe even an imprecatory psalm, can be a place to find some comfort and to find uh, words for our prayers. Some have said that the psalms are the soul's medicine chest. So if the psalms are the soul's medicine chest, we should read the labels. We should know what kind of pills these are, right? We shouldn't just open the medicine chest and dump all the pills in. Uh, it's the Bible, so it's safe to do that, you could say, but, but you get what I'm, what I'm after. We're, we're supposed to know uh, what each psalm is for and what it does and how it's to work and, and why it can be useful for us, okay? All right, now let's talk about Go back, not yet. Let's talk about the parts. Can't get it to disappear now. Oh well. So never mind about kinds and why parts. The parts of Hebrew poetry. There are three parts. And let me pause and clarify here because some of you are going to wonder this uh, in the next few minutes if you haven't already as we talk about technical language, technical labels for language. Some of us can roll our eyes at that or some of us can sort of uh, put too much responsibility upon ourselves. Most of us in this room will probably never in our lives have all of these categories which we're about to work through uh, memorized and in our brains and being aptly used in every single psalm that we ever read. None of us are going to use these tools that way. Think of it this way. These are formal exercises that we're sort of putting our minds through in order to help build muscle memory and good instincts. But with Bible study, at least the interpretation of it, uh, the name of the game is thorough observations, and good question asking. That's really all we're after. We're just going to put some, uh, some fancy labels on that this morning, okay? So one of the parts of a psalm is called a line. A line. Now this is confusing because a line in poetry, technical terms, is almost always more than a line. I don't know whoever thought that we should call something that's more than a line, a line, but they did. Um, so in Psalm 92, verse 1, see that? It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. That's, in poetry, a line, okay? It's not always a single verse, don't think that. And it's not always one sentence. So here's another example. See, this is not one sentence, but two. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. A line in Hebrew is a, a parallel. Um, we could say, even though this isn't technically correct, a line is two lines. Okay? Then we have another part of Hebrew poetry called a strophe. And this makes up multiple lines. Multiple lines which make up one unit of thought. There's that definition if you want to write it down. A strophe. 
multiple lines making up a unit of thought. It's what in prose is a paragraph. What a paragraph is to normal reading and writing like we're used to, uh, the strophe is to, um, to poetry. Psalm 13 is an example. It has uh, three strophes. In fact, open your Bible there. Open to Psalm 13, even though it's on the screen. We can't put the whole psalm on uh, one single slide, and so it'll help to get to Psalm 13 and look at it in your Bible. And some of you will get to Psalm 13, and you will see six verses of text, and it all looks the same. It might even be in no paragraph form whatsoever. It's just a block of text. Don't be embarrassed, but raise your hand if that's you. Your Bible is just a block of text, and it doesn't have any paragraphs or lines or separation. Yep. Now, how many of you have a Bible where there's a space between verses 2 and 3? Okay? That's a strophe. That's, that's setting off strophes, you could say. Verses 1 and 2 are a strophe. Uh, verses 3 and 4 are another strophe. Verses 5 and 6 are another strophe. So this may mean that you want to buy an additional Bible if you don't have a Bible that has this. Those line breaks are not inspired. It's not like in the old Hebrew manuscripts that we've discovered. You can find these spaces and go, oh, okay, no, no, no. Uh, it, it's people smarter than us uh, who know grammar pretty well and know Hebrew poetry pretty well, and they're giving a really good educated guess on how this stuff works and where the breaks should be. So in sermons, you probably, if you have a Bible like this, you might have noticed that points seem to generally fall uh, along these lines. And it's not just that the preacher is leaning on the spaces in his Bible, um, but that's something at least this preacher is aware of when I'm looking down um, in my English text for the beginning of the week and beginning to study a, a passage like that. So strophes can help us to see where a psalm is turning, uh, what sections are about sort of the same thing, and then where the topic or theme has moved on a little bit. The third part of a psalm is called a stanza. Now these are in longer psalms. In longer psalms, you have multiple strophes that continue uh, a long thought or theme. That is a stanza. So turn to Psalm 19, if you would. Psalm 19. And you can just glance at it. We won't read Psalm 19 together. But you can glance and see if I can get back to this. There we go. No. You can see in Psalm 19, there are multiple strophes. I think in my Bible, I count one, two, three, four. But there are two stanzas. And you can tell this based on the theme or the change that takes place. Just glancing down, don't you see? Verses one through six are all about what? The heavens or creation in general, right? Uh, speech, well, but that's actually um, verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. That's talking about how God's creation is like speech. 
But you get to verse 7, the topic has changed. It's not creation anymore, it's what? Law. And really, that's the rest of the psalm, Bible. So this psalm has two parts to it. Creation, Bible. Or in some ways, you could say the two ways in which uh, God speaks. I'm making a mess of my slides here. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so I will just ignore, just ignore what's on that screen until I say, look at that screen. Okay? Let's talk about elements of Hebrew poetry. This third section of uh, the parts of Hebrew poetry, there are certain elements. Let me mention five elements. One is repetition. Repetition. There's a repetition of words, phrases, or ideas. We got to watch for those. This is really all over the Psalms. Like in Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise him, praise the Lord, praise him from the, praise him with the, praise him with the, what's the Psalm about? Praise the Lord. Right? The repetition helps us understand what it's about. Then there are word pictures. A second element of Hebrew poetry is word pictures or figures of speech. Um, there's symbolism in the Bible. Now here's where I actually have to figure out where we are in our, uh, in our slides here. Sorry about this. I apologize. I think we're way off. Well, all right, it's not on here. Psalm 3, 7, though. Let me read it to you. Uh, I think you have that reference, at least in your notes, with symbolism. Um, Arise, O Lord. You can turn there if you want. Psalm 3, 7. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, it, if we read this in literal terms, like this is a newspaper clipping, we'll totally misunderstand it. You strike my enemies on the cheek. So the psalmist just wants God to punch people that he doesn't like, uh, and punch them so hard that he breaks their teeth. No, so teeth here, think of, a lion, think of being caught in its teeth, and now God strikes the lion, and the threat is broken. See, it's imagery. Um, there's threat, potential death, being caught, and he's praying God would remove the threat, remove the grip, defeat the enemies because they have this grip and they want to oppose and they want to cause harm, uh, but it's put in really vivid terms, isn't it? Or Psalm 23, verse 1. Chris helped me out back there, did Thank you, Chris. Psalm 23, verse 1. Here's a metaphor. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a metaphor. Um, is God really a shepherd? 
Like he has literal sheep? No, of course not. It's, it's a word picture for our relationship to God, that he cares for us, that he leads us, that he protects us, that he feeds us, that he guides us, that he goes after us, on and on it goes. You see how this imagery is meant to be emotionally and mentally stirring. So we have to let it have that effect upon us. Um, this imagery invites reflection. It makes us slow down. It should, anyway. It should make us slow down and ponder and even imagine. We're supposed to imagine this stuff. There's a simile, which is like a metaphor. You probably know the difference. A simile uses words like like or as. So, Psalm 131, verse 2 I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. So when we see like or as, we know we're dealing with symbolism here. It's explicit. Um, and then again, we're thinking of um, how we should ponder this and imagine it and why it's emotionally and mentally stirring and, and, and that we should reflect on it. Another element of uh, Hebrew poetry, a big word, is synecdoche. Anyone know what that is? It's a part for the whole. So a part of something for the whole of that thing. The part is emblematic for the whole thing. So you often see this with God. Um, God's right hand. Is that literal? Um, being at the Lord's side or the Lord being at the psalmist's side? Is that literal? Well, no, because other psalms talk about him being all around. You see? It's not literal. It's not like God is just at the right side or that we're just at his right side. Uh, it, it means that we're right next to him and we're close to him. Um, God's name works like this. God's name is a part for the whole of God. Synecdoche. Another element is parallelism. And now here, we've got a bunch of them. You see in your notes, we've got maybe, what, five or six different versions of parallelism. One is called synonymous parallelism. Let's see, Psalm 6, 9. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. Both lines say the same thing. That's the definition you might want to write down if you're taking notes. Both lines say the same thing. There's repetition for the sake of beauty, for the sake of emphasis, maybe for the sake of emotion, uh, maybe because it's just a song. It's a song we're supposed to sing. So that's synonymous parallelism. But most parallelism is not just synonymous or, or mere repetition. So there's antithetical parallelism, like in Psalm 18:27, For you save a humble people but the haughty eyes you bring down. You see, they're parallel lines. I know they make up one line in poetry, but for our sake, we would say those are parallel lines that contrast. There's a but that makes the turn in the middle there. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And notice that it's parallel on more than one front. It's humble and haughty, and you save, you bring down. So two different kinds of people and two different destinies or results. 
Then there's synthetic parallelism. This is found in Psalm 6.4. To turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Synthetic parallelism, uh, with this, the second line completes the thought. The second line completes the thought, or it's supplemental to it. So there's the request in the first line, deliver my life. And then in the second line, there's save me. That's the same as deliver my life, but now added to it, for the sake of your steadfast love. There's climactic parallelism in the Psalms, like in Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. With climactic parallelism, uh, it begins, it stops, it backs up, it starts again, and it moves on. It has a, a musical feel to it. Uh, it sort of builds the anticipation, you could say. Then there's emblematic parallelism, like in Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. You see, they're saying the same thing, but one is a one is a picture, and one is reality. So with emblematic parallelism, words like as and so and like are often found with, within them. And what's that called, by the way, when there's a metaphor that has a like or an as in it? Simile. Yeah, see, some of you are actually knowing this stuff and memorizing this stuff and tucking it away. Another way to think about parallelism, let me just simplify it. Would that be good to ignore everything I just said uh, with parallelism and just simplify it for you? It's like this. Two lines with some kind of difference or movement between them. That's it. That's all we're looking for with, with uh, parallelism. We're to ask, wait, what's this doing? What does it mean? What is it communicating? And what does it signify? How does the second line move past or differentiate itself from the first line? Another element is called inclusio. Inclusio. In sermons, you'll sometimes hear a preacher say that there are bookends. Have you heard that? How many of you have gone to Desert Springs long enough to hear someone say bookends? They talk about bookends a lot. Uh, the fancy term for bookends is inclusio. Aren't you thankful we say bookends? So bookends are uh, a theme or a word or language at the beginning and at the end meant to communicate that this is what it's all about, right? If you read the first page of a book and the last page of a book and you saw some common themes or ideas there, you'd go, I know what this book is about. And that's the way bookends work. Uh, you see it in Psalm 122. It begins, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then verse 8, that actually should say something about the house of the Lord. Um, I'm not sure, but we maybe got part of the verse 8 in there on that. But we have house of the Lord at the beginning of Psalm 122 and house of the Lord at the end of Psalm 122. This thing's about the house of the Lord. Or even maybe more clear is Psalm 8, 1 and 9. At the beginning and end says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. Now, the significance of inclusio or bookends is that it's, again, summarizing or anchoring the whole. It's showing us the primary theme. This is one of the easiest ways to get to the heartbeat of a psalm or a passage if it has it. And they don't always have it. But it's maybe one of the first things to look for. Another element is called chiasm. Chiasm. Think of chiasm as a slightly more complex inclusio um, because it's got more stuff in the middle. It's called chiasm because the Greek letter chi uh, or chi is in the shape of our letter X. And so think of the first half of an X. It's in that shape. I guess as you're looking at me, it's, it's in that shape for you, okay? Well, that's what these psalms do. They, uh, they have something at the beginning, at the end, that corresponds or contrasts. And then as you work your way in, they keep corresponding. Corresponding theme, corresponding language, or again, could be corresponding with a contrast. So you might want to, in your notes, just write down something like a... I guess I'll do it for you as you look at me. Um, this is what it looked like on your page. A, B, C, B, A. Remember that? Anyone remember that from school? I think you're supposed to, on the second B and A, you're supposed to put a little apostrophe next to it. I think it's, it's in the notes. Oh, okay, good. Better. So you're supposed to put an apostrophe. I think it's called prime or something like that. We, we won't look at an example on that. Uh, you could look at Psalm 110 on your own time and see if you can try to discover the, the chiasm that's going on there. Oftentimes with a chiasm, the center is the focal point or there's a contrast between the two bookends and what's in the middle. Look for that. Let's quickly go through the historical and literary context to a psalm. This is nothing new for you if you've heard much preaching from the psalms. Uh, we should always consider if there's an author 75 of the Psalms are by David. That's telling. Some of them actually give a historical context or setting to the Psalm. Like in Psalm 3, it says at the beginning, this is a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. That's one of the more descriptive headings we have in all the Psalms. But that points us right back to 2 Samuel and allows us to go reading in the story then to see what was going on in David's life in uh, what words flowed out of that in prayer, uh, in petition to God. So historical setting is always important if it's there. And location in the Psalms is another part of historical and literary context. Uh, we've been in Psalms of Ascents recently. Some of those are by David, some of them by Solomon. Even where they're not by an author that we know, there's no author heading in it, if it says Psalms of Ascent, we should think about those pilgrims who made their once every three or three times a year pilgrimages to Jerusalem for feast and sacrifice. And they would use those songs on the way as they ascended to Jerusalem. Um, we could think of the, the, uh, the, the people of God who came back from Babylon um, as they came from exile to Jerusalem. They may... They likely have, had sung these songs on the way. Um, and those are historical contexts for us to, to think about. 
Ron will talk more about sections of the Psalms in his next talk, but books one through five would also be um, something to consider as we're trying to understand the literary and historical context of a Psalm. Um, Ron may or may not talk about that, but if not, there are, uh, there's a, a sermon series on our website that Ron did years ago. Um, he did five messages on the five books. Did you know there are books within the 150 Psalms? They're books. And, um, and Ron did a, a series of messages on the, the differences between those books some years ago. There's also movement in a psalm for us to consider. The movement of a psalm or the flow of a psalm can be charted at times or observed at times based on a change in kind of psalm material. Sometimes it'll move from lament to praise, or it might go from historical recounting to praise. We should ask if there's a change in subject, that is, who is speaking. Sometimes the psalmist is speaking in first person, and then all of a sudden he's speaking in second person plural, we, right? Uh, the object, is it to God? Maybe it starts to God and then moves to the people, or maybe it starts with uh, uh, himself and then addresses God. There could be a change in topic throughout any given psalm, a change in voice as it moves from, say, first person to, to second person, uh, or, or, or setting. Do you remember um, back a few weeks ago in Psalm 122? I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord, and then within a couple of verses, Jerusalem! It's like he's been transported there, either in his mind's eye or now has arrived. There's a, a change in the setting. Um, a change in tense. I think it was just last Sunday where in Psalm 124, the first seven verses were all past tense, past tense, past tense, past tense. And then the final verse, and the Lord is, is present tense. So we, we noticed that last week. Um, and and I think got some, some sense of the purpose of the psalm based on that change of past tense to present tense, or even just the point of view. Now, none of these are, are real technical, precise categories. My point is simply for us to watch and try to chart in any given psalm the flow, the development, the movement, where it's going. It can be a change in emotion. There can be a, 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 a shift that takes place based on a grammatical indication like the word therefore or behold or something like that. All right, well, that's the tough stuff that we worked through. We'll get to Psalm 1 now, but before that, any questions about any of this technical stuff? Any, about, any questions about the tools of Hebrew poetry? before we start to put it to work on Psalm 1? Yeah, Dan? Yeah, within Psalm 119, you have, uh, what, 22 different sections based on the Hebrew alphabet. So I think most English Bibles actually put the heading, Aleph, or Beit, Gimel, um, at the heading of uh, eight verses at a time. Um, in Hebrew, all those verses begin with the letter Aleph or Bet or Gimel. 
Um, so we, we miss out on that. So English translators have helped us by putting Aleph at the heading of uh, the first eight verses to let us know that this is, um, this is an alphabet psalm. Um, and even that communicates something. Like the way we say from A to Z, or Jesus is the Alpha and Omega. Here we have a psalm that goes from Aleph to, what's the last letter, Ron? Tav. Uh, Aleph to Tav, the Bible should be, you know, ransacked and enjoyed and prayed through and celebrated. And, and uh, so that's the sort of big picture of Psalm 119. And then on a smaller level, you have parallelism happening all the time. Um, strophes, you, I guess you could say, the strophes of Psalm 119 are based on these um, Hebrew letters. For us, that means in our Bibles, every eight verses or so. So yeah, it does apply. It's just on a grander scale. training indeed and uh and they were just they were in this stuff you know we're really good at technology they were really good at theology shepherd yeah shepherd's a yeah shepherd's a, a really good trade uh to be a bible guy with right you're sitting around a whole lot um and every you know, faithful Jewish family in those days would have been training their sons and daughters in that Deuteronomy 6 way of, you know, talking about God's ways when they're out and when they're in and when they're going to bed and when they're getting up. And um, so they, they thought about this stuff a whole lot more than we do. Um, in just the way that we know to interpret certain genres uh, of, of literature just by instinct and experience. If I said my wife's lips are like roses, or I even said my wife's lips are roses, you wouldn't need to say, what are you talking about? That's insane, that's impossible. You, everyone just knows what I'm doing. And in the same way, they swam in this stuff. And hence, um, yeah, they, they didn't need um, even so much the formal training that we do. They, I'm sure they didn't put labels on this stuff like we're doing this morning. It was just more instinctive because they were in it all the time. Yeah. 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 Poetry is all over the Bible. It's all over. It's, it's debated what is poetry and what isn't poetry. Um, but some say that the Old Testament is uh, 35 or 40% poetry. Others say it's as high as 75% poetry. Because even narrative things like Job are written in poetry, we just can't tell in our English Bibles. So poetry was huge for them. Yeah. And again, remember what poetry is meant to do? It's meant to excite. It's meant to excite. It's, it's, it's meant to invite, to ponder, to slow down. And I mean, we're in a microwave culture that just wants to tell it to me, get it to me as jam-packed and as quickly as possible and, and this kind of literature um, would have us approach it differently and, uh, and I think that's really helpful all right let's try this on Psalm 1 now I'm going to read Psalm 1 out loud you have it there in your text just like it sits in some English Bibles with trophies separation um, 
I'm going to encourage you to mark up what you have there on your white page in a way that you wouldn't maybe mark up your personal Bibles. So draw lines and, you know, do weird things uh, like boxes or triangles or circles or ovals to try to see what goes together, perhaps. Uh, let me read it, and then what we'll do in the rest of our time, it'll be completely interactive. Basically, I'll ask questions about the psalm, and then you guys will and I'll try to mark it up on the screen for us so we can keep track of our, our findings together. Okay? Here's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, what kind of psalm is this? It's wisdom, right? We know that. It's a wisdom psalm. It instructs, okay? Who are the subjects of this psalm? I know we don't talk like that usually. Subjects, who are the people? Who are the players in the psalm? Yeah, there's wicked and, let's see, how do I do this? Oh, yeah, I got to hit that button. So we've got wicked and the righteous, right? That's it. Are there any other players involved? Any other subjects in this psalm? The Lord, yeah. Any others, though? Tree, that's okay, that's not a subject. That would be an illustration for one of these subjects, right? My point is this. It, this is about two different kinds of people, right? Is there any part of the psalm where there isn't a contrast going on? Or if we assume the strophes that are in most of our English Bibles, you've got three parts, verses 1 and 2, another part 3 and 4, another part 5 and 6. Any part that doesn't have a contrast? Yep, good observation. We'll get to that. But notice this. Okay, here's a contrast. And then you get to the next one, and here's a contrast, right? The, the good went from, oh, the bad, contrast, what I meant to write there. And again, and this one, therefore the wicked shall not stand, nor sinners. That's okay, those are bad guys, and then for the Lord knows, okay, here's contrast, it's changing there, okay? So this is a, this is a psalm about contrasts. I, I could have thought maybe at the beginning, it's a, it's a psalm about the Bible. I wouldn't have been wrong. Or it's a psalm about how to have a blessed life. I wouldn't have been totally wrong. But if I missed the contrast, uh, I, I totally missed the psalm. Do you see that? 
How about parallelism? Let's go back to, let's see, parallelism in verse 1. What do you see? Forget the categories of parallelism that we talked about. Let's simplify it. What happens? Jordan, take it away. What happens in these three lines after blessed is the man? Yeah, and you see it also in the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, the seat of the scoffers. You can also see it in, in something of wicked sinners, scoffers. We, maybe in our English, we would say sinners is sort of less bad than wicked. But probably in Hebrew, that, that isn't the case. There seems to be some progression between wicked, sinners, and then scoffers, those who are so sinful, they scoff at the righteous. So this is parallelism, isn't it? And notice parallelism here in this case wasn't two lines in our English, uh, in our um, modern vocabulary of lines. It's not two lines, but it's three lines, isn't it? And these three lines, to confuse you, make up one line of Hebrew poetry, okay? How about the word pictures in verses 3 and 4? We have what? We've got tree. And then what are the chaff? Oh, sorry, I gave it away. What are the wicked like? Chaff. All right. So we've got two word pictures here. Describe for me the, uh, the, the, the tree. This is a simile, right? We've got this word like. That's a simile. So what are, the, what are the trees like? Or what's the blessed man like? It's like, what's that? Fruit, okay, fruitful. Keep going, there are a lot there. He's what? Deeply rooted, yeah, planted is the word, but deeply rooted is what it means to communicate, right? Prosperous, yeah. That's kind of like fruitful, but it actually elevates it a little bit. So you've got fruit here, but prospers here. Uh, that, that's, that's good. He doesn't wither. What would we want to call that? He perseveres. Whoa. Connection lost. Experiencing technical difficulties. I can't access it. Can you help me out, Chris? All right, here it comes. He is like a, here we go, this one. Oh no, they went away. Oh no, they didn't. Okay, good. Boy, this is almost not worth it. Where are we now? Sorry, folks. It's back, okay. And see, my screen doesn't have any of those writings on it, so that's interesting. Yep. 
Okay, let me get back to my notes now. So parallelism, we did that. Word pictures, tree. We're making a list here, deeply rooted, fruitful, prosperous. How about alive, right? I mean, that's really important. This tree's alive. It's living. Um, isn't there something almost serene about a tree planted by streams of living water? This isn't, maybe we can contrast it with Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. You see that? That's a contrast with our psalm, Psalm 1. Uh, so serene. We'll add that to the list here. Sure. Yeah. Right. But this psalm doesn't want us to think of everything that could be said. The psalm, if it had a footnote that said, by the way, we know that not all trees are healthy. Some trees are rotted out in the inside. Some trees have leaves that wither. This is just a contrast, a simple contrast with a healthy tree, between a healthy tree and, let's talk about this other one, chaff. So what's the chaff like? Let's describe that. Chaff is what? It's dead. What's that? Okay, go ahead. Um, Christ is supposed to be our living water. And if you're planted by the word, you would be pure. And, and if we had more time, we would think of how, to, how does this get to the New Testament? How should Christians think about this specifically as Christians, not just as the people of God of all times? We can't do that today. We don't have the time for that. So that's a, an interesting thought, how we get to Jesus from this passage um, we're just trying to work on the text itself here in its context and see if we can get um, all, that we, all that we can get in the time that we have. So chaff is dead, it's dry, it's blown. What else? It's not planted, so it's not secure, right? You see all that? And really, everything that had been said about the tree... Um, it's not so with the wicked. Not so. You see that? So you can sort of think of everything that is described there about the tree and then flip it on its head, and that's the case with the wicked. How about, um, how about repetition in this psalm? Have we done enough of that? Okay, maybe we have. How about the parts of the psalm? Are we happy with the three strophes that most of our English Bibles lay out for us? Or here's another way of putting it. What do the three parts of this psalm do differently? Let's go to the first one and ask that. What's this one doing? Okay, Jordan? That would be a really important thing to know. In what order does this come? Yeah, you're right. So the, the contrast keeps flipping, doesn't it? It's good. 
you see any difference between these three strophes? In verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, verses 5 and 6. I mean, I could ask it this way. Is there any movement? Is there any change that happens? Remember that whole thing of movement or shift? What kind of outcome? Because I would say verses 3 and 4 are also talking about outcome. What's that? It's eternal. And is there anything in verses 5 and 6 that point to it being eternal? Judgment. Perish. Yeah. There's also another one. Another indication that verses 5 and 6 look ahead and are not just talking about the here and now. No, that's not what I have in mind. I was thinking of will. Change of tense, right? You have blessed is the man. He is like, present tense, therefore the wicked will not stand. Okay, so now we're getting somewhere where we're talking about the blessed man's direction and the difference it makes. Uh, that's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 and 4 are talking, uh, it's described there for us. Implications of it, uh, illustration of it is given to us in verses 3 and 4. But then verses 5 and 6 are clearly talking about where this goes in the end. Okay? So if we're doing something like an, an outline, which you may not ever need to do if you don't ever teach the Bible. We might talk about the blessed man's description contrasted with the wicked in verse 1 and 2. And then the blessed man's illustration or something like that, and we're, we're leaning on the fact that there's a, there's a like. There are two likes in verses 3 and 4. There's an illustration of the blessed man contrasted with the wicked. And then verses 5 and 6, you've got something about maybe the destiny or the finality or something like that of the blessed man and the wicked. Now, let's not forget um, what this psalm is actually suggesting we do. What is it? What are some application points from this psalm based on what we have studied in it so far this morning? Yeah, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on that law day and night. Okay? So, delight, meditate. This is parallelism, right? This is adding to the parallelism. Of course, it's hyperbole. It doesn't actually mean do nothing else, don't have a job, uh, figure out a way to study the Bible for a living. Um, it, it means as much as you can constantly. Okay. So this is one of the things, but it's not the only thing. Verse 1 and 2 are sort of describing what the blessed man is like. It's actually saying that there are two parts to the blessed man, one of which he's a Bible-filled, Bible-saturated, Bible-delighting guy. What's the first one before that? Yeah, it's what he doesn't do. He flees sin, Right? He even flees temptation. 
We know from the rest of the Bible this doesn't mean cut yourself off from the world and have nothing to do with them. But it does mean be careful of the influence of others. Be careful of that vortex of sin because it often moves like this where you walk by it and then you stand around it and then you're sitting in it. Right? What's the goal? Lesson. What's that mean? Happy. It means flourishing. Uh, It doesn't mean a guy with a slight smile and a halo. Blessed. He's He's rich, not monetarily necessarily. He's, he's rich in all of God's ways. Uh, he's blessed. Yep, joy. Yep, yeah, let's not get bogged down with uh, whether it's happy or, or joyful. It's It's... Hold on, we've got to keep going. Look at five and six now. Look at this. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So here, the application for us is that this is really serious, that delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night, fleeing sin and temptation is not just giving us a blessed life and a fruitful life and and a lasting life and and a live life, but really at the end, there are two destinies. So I would say in some ways the most important part of the psalm is that there are only two kinds of people in this world, even though it seems like there are hundreds and kinds of people. There are two destinies. So... Choose this day whom you'll serve, right? And how is Psalm 1 then um, a great introduction to the whole Psalter? Why, why is Psalm 1 where it is in the Psalter? Hint, it's not because it's titled Psalm 1. <laughs> that wasn't there originally. Do you see how this is an invitation to the Psalms? This is an invitation to walking with God. This is an invitation to meditating on His Word and maybe even specifically the word of these psalms, day and night. You'll be fruitful if you do it, but it takes work, and you've got to flee the temptation that's around you. There's a lot of it. So let's pray for his help. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how rich it is and how sweet it is, and we want to know it better, and we want to walk in its ways. Help us, Lord. Lord, help us to seek you. Help us to discipline ourselves to go to your word and to spend time in it and to give thought and meditation to it. Help us, Lord, to delight in it as we do that. May it not just be discipline, let alone drudgery, but Lord, may your word be our delight. Keep us from beholding worthless things and quicken us in your ways. We thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for our time together as a church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.